This is Small Talk with 101 ESPN's Michelle Smallman. Hey, what's up? Welcome into episode 77 of Small Talk. I'm your host, Michelle Smallman, pumped for this week's podcast. It's been an exciting time in sports here in St. Louis. Our XFL team, the St. Louis Battlehawks, had their first game on the road versus the Dallas Renegades. They were the underdog in that game and came away with a huge road win. It came down to the wire, but the Battlehawks persevered. ESPN broadcaster Tom Hart, who is a Missouri native, was on the call for that game. We're going to speak to him, get his perspective of that game and of the viability of the XFL. But before we do that, we haven't done this in a while. Let's do three random things, shall we? Random thing number one, my friends had been obsessing over the show Cheer on Netflix. They kept hounding me to watch it. We had some bad weather in St. Louis over the weekend, so I ended up binging it. And oh my God, I was hooked so quickly. I cannot believe the amount of emotional buy-in that happened with me for the Navarro Cheer team. And I obviously have a few Cheer observations. First of all, I cannot get enough of Jerry. As soon as I wrapped cheer, I missed Jerry. Jerry is a beacon of sunshine and positivity and selflessness. And I was more invested in Jerry making Matt than most likely I will be for my own children's athletic competitions. I needed Jerry to make Matt more than anything on planet Earth. I was texting with my friends about cheer as I was watching the show. And I actually texted them, if Jerry doesn't make Matt for Daytona, I will burn Corsicana, Texas, to the ground. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the show, tune out right now. If you have, I'm sure you're going to echo these sentiments. But when Jerry not only made Matt, but performed in Daytona and walked away a champion, I wept. It was insane. I love Jerry so much. Jerry's story is heartbreaking. He's been through so much personal adversity, but for him to be such a happy and wonderful person and constantly uplift other people, it was very inspiring to me. Yes, I now follow him on Instagram. Yes, I donated to his GoFundMe account. Yes, I want him to Matt talk me every single morning. Yes, I want to hang out with him and drink wine and watch Bad Girls Club. Jerry, if you're listening, I love you so much. A few more quick hit observations on cheer. Gabby Butler's parents, too much for me. Just too much. Also, Gabby Butler is one of those people that reminds me that there are people walking and existing among us that are crazy famous and I have no idea who they are. For her to be this massive celebrity in the cheer world and I had never heard of her was kind of disconcerting to me. But anyway, shout out to Gabby and her millions of Instagram followers and shout out to her dad for trying to manage her career and the swimsuit line. He's annoying and persistent, but it seems like he's making her some cash. So shout out to her dad. Now Ladarius. I had conflicting feelings on Ladarius at first. I was like, Ladarius, bad attitude. I don't want him to be on Matt because I need Jerry to make Matt. When they made that switch, I was all out on Ladarius, all in on Jerry. But Ladarius has an interesting story. Once the show developed and I understood his background and everything that he went through, I understood why he might have a bad attitude. I understood why he didn't want to put up with crap from anybody else. And as I watched more of Ladarius and got more of a sense of who he is, I realized that Ladarius got a bad shake, okay? He does not need an attitude adjustment. He just can't stand losing. This was a positive thing in his life, and he wanted to walk away a champion. And I wish more people on the squad had the same passion as Ladarius. <sighs> Allie, I'm looking at you. Stop crying over every little thing. I am so team Ladarius when it comes to Allie. She's the one that needs an attitude adjustment, all right? Not to mention Ladarius is a world-class tumbler, and he has a rock-solid stage present, and Monica would have been nuts to take him off Matt. I'm glad that she kept him in. And speaking of Monica, she is the Bill Belichick of the cheer world. 
She is a slave to detail and hard work. She leads with a quiet yet forceful confidence and her leadership is never in question. If I was a cheerleader, I would want to cheer for Monica. And there were so many people to actually cheer for on this show. Lexi and her story. Morgan, oh my God, her dad, the worst. I hope he felt like absolute crap watching this show as he should. It truly was an amazing show. A plus content. I highly recommend it. I have a lot of girlfriends who enjoyed it, a lot of guy friends who enjoyed it. So if you need something to do this weekend, I recommend Cheer on Netflix. Okay, random thing number two. I want to talk about nachos. Over the weekend, I went to two different places and got nachos. Yeah, I know. You're probably thinking, Jesus, Michelle, that seems a bit excessive. And you're right. I didn't feel good about it. Okay, but it was necessary. One place that I went to, the nachos were okay. The other place I went to, they were terrible. Absolutely terrible terrible. And I tweeted this out and it got a lot of response, but you would think that nachos would be a slam dunk, easy dish for restaurants to put on their menu, especially a bar. There is no reason why I should be able to make better nachos in my microwave at home with shredded cheese than you can at a restaurant. But then when you actually sit there and think about it, when you reflect on the nachos that you've had, How often do you really get amazing nachos at a bar or restaurant? It's rare. And it's all about dispersion, okay? What these places need to realize is that it's all about layers. You need to go chip, shredded cheese, chip, shredded cheese. Then you bake it. Then you put your accoutrements and toppings on the very top layer. And maybe pop it in for an extra minute or two of baking just to let it all settle in. And you have to serve immediately. You cannot let the cheese congeal and get cold. This is not a difficult concept. So I don't know why so many restaurants out there are struggling with nachos. Random thing number three. If you were listening last week to the podcast, you heard Steve's wife, Maddie, and I talk about a car that she had seen in Connecticut that was wrapped like a police car. But the only thing it was hunting was booty. It was called Booty Patrol. And this is why this podcast is insane, because Maddie and I both received a DM from Shiraz, the owner of Booty Patrol, who had gotten word that he was on our podcast and listened to it. So we connected with Shiraz, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but he is joining us right now for random thing number three. So I would love to welcome Maddie Cerruti back into the podcast. Hi, Michelle. So happy to be here. And I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this. Thrilled to welcome in Shiraz, the owner of Booty Patrol. Shiraz, hello. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you guys? We are doing so much better now that we're speaking to you. And as you can imagine, we have so many questions, not not only just about Booty Patrol, but just about this whole conversation in general. So first things first, Shiraz, how did you find out about this podcast? How did you find out that a podcast based out of St. Louis, Missouri, a sports podcast, was talking about your ride? So I have um, quite a few followers, as as you've seen, and... um, one of my followers actually DM'd me a link to your podcast, and he said, hey, go to the 30-minute mark. You're getting a lot of publicity. And I was wondering why there was so much traffic coming onto my page. <laughs> so I was uh, oh, driving back from God. work. I was driving back from work, and I'm listening to this, and I'm like, oh, my God, is this real? Because a few months back in September, I was also featured on a local radio station that did the, almost the same thing. I am so- Okay, so you said a local radio station did almost the same thing. So I'm imagining that when you drive this car around town, you get a lot of people asking questions, correct? Oh, of course. Of course. And there's, I mean, it's nonstop. 
um, it gets a lot of attention. Um, you know, I I can't even, you know, go pump my own gas if I want to because I just get bombarded with people asking questions. We've got so many questions, so I'll start. And Maddie, you can jump in after me. We can kind of ping pong here. But the first question I have is, Shiraz, how did all of this start? How did you come up with the concept to wrap your car, make it look like a cop car, drive it around town, and call it Booty Patrol? <laughs> so the car was, it's originally a show car. Um, it was wrapped like a, like almost like a mood ring before, like a color shift. And then everyone was starting to do that. So I like to be unique and out of the box. I wanted to originally do a police car. Um, but then after we had wrapped the whole black and white without putting any lettering on it, I checked with my local laws um, with the state police. And uh, they said, as long as you don't have an agency on the side, you're good. And I said, well, I'll create my own agency. Booty patrol. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's pretty much how it happened. Everyone knows me as for the guy that loves booty, so. Amazing. My question is, one, is that your normal car that you drive around? Mm-hmm. And two, what does your employer and your family think of this? So, when I first did it, um, I parked it in my driveway, and my sister was like, you got to get that thing out of here. What are our neighbors going to think of us? Um, (laughs) uh, So, I bought a car cover for it, uh, and then I bought a secondary car to drive uh, around as a a daily car, um, and I just kept it in the driveway as a show car only. Um, But I take it to bars on the weekends, as Maddie saw. I went to uh, a bar out in, I believe, Manchester. I took it out after a while, and, um, you know, that's where she saw it. Um, My employers, um, you know, it's hysterical. It puts a smile on everyone's face, but uh, I have to park it, like, three blocks down (laughs) from where I work and then walk into work. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's incredible. I have so many follow-ups here, but I think I want to hone in on this one. Have you ever been stopped by law enforcement thinking that you're a brother in blue or had another car slowed down as you approach because they think you're a cop? So I've never seen so many cars following and abiding laws around me as I have in this, you know, specific style of a car. Um, People always think I'm a cop. They always get out of my way. It's insane. (laughs) And then I've, I've also had cops stop me here and there. You know, to question me, ask me, you know, uh, what's going on with this car. But uh, mostly just to take pictures with it. That's a smart move. Maybe we should all be driving cars that sort of look like cop cars so that people get out of our way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's actually influenced people across the U.S. and even uh, two cars internationally to also do the same design. So people have been, I mean, I, I just unveiled it in September. And people have been, um, you know, there's already a flock of booty patrol cars out there. Now, that's some clout, okay? That's what what we call influence. (laughs) Um, So, another question for you. You have said that you are a man who is a noted booty connoisseur, right? Like, this is part of your identity so much that you made this vehicle. Has it helped you in that area? Has it helped you with the ladies? Um, Honestly, nine out of ten times, you know, I'm not leaving the bar alone. Um, and it's, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, it's, it's because of my car. I mean, my personality is great as well, but, um, the car definitely does help. I'd be lying if I did, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want to go for a ride in booty patrol? Of course. I get DMs all the time of people asking for a ride in their car and I'm like, listen, I'm not your Uber, but, uh, I'll give you a ride if, if you want. <laughs> so 
when you went to the auto body shop, which it seems like you're kind of a car guy, you had a show car, you, you know, you seem like a car guy. Is that an accurate representation? Oh, yeah, definitely. I own my own car club, and uh, we go to shows all over the Northeast, Mass, Rhode Island, New York, New Hampshire, wherever you say uh, Pennsylvania, we travel uh, with a flock of cars, uh, all modified, and we go to shows together, you know. Um, at the end of the season, we head over to Ocean City, Maryland, where they have a international event and uh, cause a disturbance over there. <laughs> so when you were like, all right, cop car, booty patrol, this is the move. When you brought it to the auto body shop or wherever they wrap cars, because I don't know much about cars and detailing, were you yeah. like, okay, so I wanted to say booty patrol, <laughs> 69, the whole night, were they like... <laughs> What was their reaction, or they're, they're like, you know, they're used to it? So I bought a bunch of vinyl, and uh, you'll see it's, like, all satin black and satin white. Um, I wanted to go with the different, um, you know, out of the box, different from everyone. So I did that. Um, the guys who wrapped my car, they knew about, like, the police theme I was doing, which is fine. It took them a few days to wrap it. They're great friends of mine. They just started up their business, Image Detail Connecticut. They didn't know what exactly I was going to put on it. Then I took it over to my buddy Alex's house, and we stayed up till 2 a.m. applying all these things onto the car instead of to protect and serve. It is to protect and clap them cheeks. Um, there's just we took an NY we took an NYPD logo and photoshopped it and put a peach in the center. You know, so it was a lot of work. You know, and spent, we stayed up until 2 a.m. You know, printing all these things out and putting it on the car. That is incredible. I appreciate the creativity there. And as I said on the podcast, too, I really appreciate the creativity and your captions. This is not just your average car Instagram account. You're really funny and witty in your captions, and it seems like you take great care in crafting them. Definitely. And I've, I've actually you know, thought of going into the role of being a stand-up comedian. One of my goals, biggest goals in life is to uh, make sure... I put a smile on people's faces, and that's exactly what this car is doing. That's what I do as a person myself, even without the car, and uh, I like to keep it that way. You don't know what anyone's going through, what demons they're facing, so just a simple smile can change someone's day. I love that, and I totally agree. And I think one of the things I said when we were talking about it was that this is just such a true representation of you and just letting your true colors out, which I love. Not many people would do this. Not many people would drive around with booty patrol on the side of their cart, and you just let it fly, and I love that. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, if anything, be yourself, right? Um, Be the best person you can and be yourself. Don't don't change yourself for anyone. I've got to say, this has taken such a left turn because I... You are so uh, surprising to me. It's almost disconcerting. I expected you to be this guy that was kind of creepy and was just like, I love ass. Like, let me tell you the 12 reasons that I love ass. And you are so sweet and you're so kind and you're inspiring. I mean, I am inspired by Booty Patrol. I know. I, I try to. I try to do. I, I. I. I try to do the best, and I try to you know make sure the next person does the same as well and pays it forward. So. Um, also, I wanted to bring up that it's not the real Buddha. It's the oh real Buddha. I know. So we have um, to apologize for that because. No, no, it's okay. You it, have to I understand. In the moment, we're thinking like, oh, booty, smooth as butter. Like, I just thought <laughs> it just, was just like, I didn't even think twice about it because I just assumed that it was something having to do with butts. <laughs> 
Yeah. Me too. So the, uh, Me too. a great way to remember it, and I bring it up to a lot of people, is I'm smooth like butter, but I'm thick like Buddha. <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. Amazing. Can you put that on a shirt? Yeah. I will wear it. I will buy it 100%. I will wear it on TV if I'm ever on TV. Okay, well, Shiraz, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for being so nice and fun. And this is just an amazing way to tie it all together. And I want everyone to go out there and follow your Instagram page because you're going to get great car content, witty captions, and you're going to be uplifted, people. Okay, this is what you just heard. You're going to get something from Shiraz every day to put a smile on your face. So follow him at the real. Buddha, but it's B H U T T A. You can find Booty Patrol there. Thank you for doing this. Honestly, it was a real treat. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We have another great conversation on deck for you with Tom Hart of ESPN and the SEC Network. He's a Mizzou guy. He's from Columbia Mo. So I want to ask him about Eli Drinkwitz and his early returns at Mizzou as their head football coach. And of course, we got to talk to him about the St. Louis Battlehawks. Big win on Sunday versus the Dallas Renegades. We're going to talk all things XFL with Tom Hart next. I'm thrilled to welcome Tom Hart to Small Talk this week. He's an incredible broadcaster for ESPN. You've probably heard his work on the SEC Network or most recently this Sunday on the call for the very first XFL game for our St. Louis Battlehawks. Big road win over the Dallas Renegades. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. And I love the fact that you reference them as our St. Louis Battlehawks. I think that's what makes St. Louis special as a sports town, right? There's so much civic pride that it, it hasn't taken long for this city to embrace that team. A win week one certainly helps, but the local pride is just overwhelming when it comes to all of the professional college sports in St. Louis, and it's really cool to see it extending to the XFL. You know, let's start there, and you're absolutely right because – we here in St. Louis do take that extra special pride in our sports teams. And obviously professional football is a sensitive arena there because not only did mm-hmm. the Rams get ripped away from us, but on the way out, you had the owner saying this is a terrible sports market unless you're the Cardinals. No other professional teams can survive here. So not only did I think St. Louis would just naturally get behind the XFL and the Battle Hawks because that's what we do here in St. Louis is we support our teams. But I think there is that little extra we're going to prove the NFL wrong. We're going to prove Stan Kroenke wrong. And we've really seen this city embrace this this Battlehawks team. So I don't know in, in your prep for the week or anything, if you got that sense as well, if people in the league were telling you that it seemed like St. Louis was really supporting the Battlehawks. Right off the bat, talking with the league officials, um, they pointed to two markets that were outpacing the rest of the league when it came to local support and specifically tied into ticket sales and that was St. Louis and Seattle. And I think it's, it's really cool to see. Um, I'm anxious to see how this leg, league plays out in the major markets. I'll be in L.A. this weekend. Um, New York already had a home game. Um, but the Dallas support was good. The Houston support was great. The D.C. support was awesome. And so, I'm, you know, it, we'll see over the course of time, but I'm really anxious to see how that translates to – a full season. And what's interesting about the way you presented that um, kind of chip on the shoulder towards the NFL is the way I view it. And, you know, I don't have boots on the ground in St. Louis, but being obviously familiar with the market is that animosity isn't necessarily pointed towards the league as a whole. It is laser focused 
on one man and his bad mustache. Like this is there is one guy and then his minions underneath him um, as more information comes out seemingly on a regular basis that has drawn that ire. And and I think that's fair. I mean, I think not only what they did with the team, but how they treated the market once they were leaving and eating, even leading up to it. Um, it has all the makings like a, for, for a 30 for 30. I mean, if this wasn't a sports movie already, mm-hmm. um, it kind of seems to follow that, um, follow that script of the, the evil owner trying to bleed the city and then leaving it in its wake on the way out the door. It's, it's kind of like the monorail episode from the Simpsons without all the singing. <laughs> exactly. And as somebody who's from Missouri, you understand the parochial sense of the Midwest and just how important community is to us here. So not only did you have an owner who did this to a market who didn't necessarily deserve it for his own personal greed, but he's from Missouri. So if it wasn't yeah. a 30 for 30 before all that, to think that it's the owner who did all this is actually somebody who's from where you're from makes it just that extra it just makes it a little more gross, if you know what I mean. No, I, and, and I totally understand. And and you compare that to other owners from within the same state, and you don't you don't see that, right? You don't right. see the cold heartedness of it. Um, listen, the owners of our professional sports teams are by and large totally different from the fans who come to the games. I mean, from an economic spectrum, maybe sometimes from a political spectrum, maybe not. Um, they live in different worlds. So it can be really hard to relate to them. Yet I think fans mostly want to in the sense that that is the constant. So if a star player leaves for a better contract somewhere else, they say, man, I can't believe, you know, they weren't more loyal to the city. Star players move. They change. Owners generally don't. Um, so you've got to be a really bad owner to not get the benefit of the doubt from the locals, especially if you're the owner of a franchise that wins championships and that we all saw how that disintegrated. Well, as someone that does have boots on the ground here in St. Louis, I can report that for most people, it seems like the NFL book is closed and they're happily opening and consuming that first chapter of the XFL. And I want to talk to you about the Battle Hawks and their big win on Sunday. You were there, you were in the booth, you called the game. So what were your observations of the quality of play in the XFL so far? I was very impressed and not just um, in our game in Dallas on Sunday, but consuming it as a whole over the course of the weekend. I think you start to see who are going to be the star players, um, which players have the possibility to break out in this league, guys that are going to stand out. Um, One thing that I, I want to keep in focus is that there really was very little preseason football for these teams. I think the Battle Hawks played six quarters of scrimmage football. They practice against some other teams as well, but generally they only had one day of live tackling in any one practice and they didn't tackle in their scrimmages. So the quality of play, the efficiency, the execution, that's going to get better week by week. Consider in the NFL, not only their four preseason games, but numerous live, you know, um, joint scrimmages, throughout camps that get these guys ready. So you're hitting somebody else, you're tackling somebody else. And I think it won't take long before we start to see teams really execute better because the only thing we're missing from week one, we didn't have a 300 yard passer 
We didn't have a 100-yard rusher. We had standout players. Um, but the scoring, I don't think, was as high as the league thought it was going to be. And so that, in my opinion, that's going to get better as the weeks go on. You guys also brought something up in the broadcast yesterday that made me think, oh, wow, if this is the baseline of what we're seeing, it's only going to improve when you mentioned that these guys don't even have film on the other teams either. So as yeah. Yeah. As, so as these teams get more of uh, a sample size of one another and they can scout each other, I certainly think you'll see a heightened sense of play there as well. Yeah, it was funny talking with um, the Dallas guys and, and Bob Stoops. They had very little idea what St. Louis was going to do. Now, Chuck Long was Stoops' coordinator at Oklahoma. He was a quarterback coach when they won the national championship. He was his OC for a few years until he left to take the San Diego State head coaching job. So he's obviously familiar with Chuck's overall system, but still no film, no idea. It was a little bit easier for the St. Louis side of things because the air raid is is pretty simple. It's ubiquitous. If you want to know what Hal Mummy's going to do, He'll sell you a VHS for twenty four ninety nine. He might even throw in a T shirt. Like he, he, he's willing to share that information, and he does it on a regular basis. So there was a little bit more predictability on that side, but you still don't know the personnel. You know, you don't know who's going to be uh, the focus of either offense. You don't know who the playmaker is on defense. And when they faced each other in the preseason, both sides kept it very, very vanilla. Jay Hayes hardly blitzed at all if he did in the preseason when they met up. And then we saw a lot more pressure coming from him, especially in the red zone um, Saturday night, Sunday night, excuse me. You talk about not having film on each team, and it is cool to get involved in something on the ground floor to be in the inaugural season of something. But how was that for you from a prep standpoint, from a production meeting standpoint? Because you're learning the new rules of the XFL. You're learning the personnel of these teams. That had to be a different experience for you in prepping for a game. Well, the, the difference in execution um, was the greatest difference. You know, from a presentation standpoint, uh, when I, I'm calling a college basketball game during the week, I don't have to explain what happens when a team gets into a one-and-one. One. People just understand. Um, I don't have to explain a block charge or how this is going to be officiated, the clock rules. So mixing those rules in and trying to teach the fans about why this is different than what they're used to was number one. Um, and what went hand-in-hand hand with that was the fact that the players, you know, I saw a lot of these guys in college. I've covered them over the years. Um, you get two quarterbacks in that St. Louis team that played in the SEC, a league that I cover regularly. So that, that was simple. But how are they going to be used? Who are going to be the key players? And a wide mix of age ranges too, right? I mean, you go from 21 to 30 years old on the St. Louis roster. That's a pretty wide range as opposed to college. We're talking about maybe a five-year difference. And so the prep of finding efficient ways to learn who these players are, what their background is, how much pro experience do they have, um, what is their upside? Are these guys that are going to end up in the NFL down the road or are these guys that are just happy to be playing for the love of the game and are out there you know, making a few bucks um, and playing ball? And then finally, the, the aspect that we are able to bring the audience where you can listen in to the play calls is really cool. But to many, I think the average fan, it's, it's Greek. So we have to learn what those calls are so we can translate them for the audience. So that was where the prep really differed. And, you know, special thanks to Chuck, Chuck Long and Jay Hayes. They don't want their calls out there. They understand Vince McMahon 
knows what he's doing on the television side of things, and he's a brilliant businessman, and they decided this is how the league was going to run. And Chuck was on the Big Ten Network. He's been on the media side before. He gets it. But without him giving us some of those words and the meanings behind those words, then we aren't able to then share those meanings with the, with the audience and translate. So that's where the preparation really took a different turn for me and for our crew. I thought that was one of the best parts of the broadcast, being able to hear those play calls. I thought the live mic aspect really brought a different look from a viewership standpoint. And it just seemed like whether it was Pat McAfee interviewing players as soon as they get off the field after the, and they make a big play or just the interaction that you guys have, that it just seemed like a very lighthearted and fun broadcast. And it was fun to consume. But is that something that you guys are cognizant of or that you definitely wanted to try to incorporate as you go into this? Because it is supposed to be a league that does embrace the fun side of sports. Yeah, I try to keep all my broadcasts like that. You know, it's rare um, just from a statistical standpoint, I mean, very rare that you get a game that comes down to the last possession or to the last second, no matter what the sport is. So if you think about it, the majority of games that you watch or that I broadcast are games that are, are likely decided. So um, I think it's an art in terms of how you hold the audience. And, you know, unless you're taking a Peloton class, nobody really wants to be screamed at for an hour, <laughs> right? They, they, they want to be able to consume the information. They want to be entertained. And that's the entertainment's the number one aspect of it. I think because the fans are new to these teams, that while there is buy-in, it's not as intense as you might get, say, for a, a Saturday night college football game or an NFL game where whether the team wins or loses is going to make or break their weekend. I don't think anybody was going to go kick the dog if St. Louis lost that game, right? They just want to be entertained. So you're allowed to be more lighthearted and go off script a little bit, and it's okay if at times the attention goes away from the field to you know talk to a player on the sideline or to get Troy Aikman's take on this game. And so you have that latitude that I think most of us probably wouldn't take when it, if it came to an NFL game or an intense college game. I don't think I was to the I'm going to kick my dog state of things yet, but I have to tell you, I hosted a four-hour show today, and we took calls from fans about the XFL. I found myself having much more of an emotional buy-in than I expected to, and so many people here in St. Louis said the same thing. We actually had a guy call into the show today that said, I'm already concerned about the Battle Hawks offense and some of their play calls. What is wrong with me? <laughs> and I love it. I know. We talked about this on and off the air today. I think that St. Louis, our relationship with football, I mean, I can only obviously speak to St. Louis, but even Kroenke and all that stuff aside, just what we saw in the fields for many years was a torturous situation for us. It was 15 and 65. It was injuries and penalties and just brutal, brutal football. So to have your team who is an underdog go out and get a big road win on a last second possession was a big thing for us here in St. Louis. So I think that we are going to get to the I'm very frustrated about Chuck Long's play calling. I'm going to kick my dog <laughs> emotional barometer here pretty quickly. And, and by the way, before anybody complains, I am a dog owner. I'm a dog <laughs> lover. I'm we're just being off the cuff here. Um, I actually, truth tree, I have multiple texts from friends back in Missouri complaining about the St. Louis offense <laughs> in the first half. And I purposely did not answer those texts until I got on the plane late Sunday night. And I just responded with hater. Like, if you can't enjoy this, 
uh, and be patient enough to wait and see what happens. But I, I love the emotional buy-in. I mean, and I'm constantly surprised. And it's, I have to remove myself from the situation sometimes as a broadcaster and take a 30,000-foot view. I love what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. I'm lucky to do it. But at times, it's, um, you know, it can be very assembly line-like. You know, you go sit down. What are you doing today? I'm going to go watch practice. I'm going to sit down with Bob Stoops and Hal Mummy, and we're going to learn the play calls of the air raid. We're going to talk about his history. But, and, and it's all very much part of a process. Um, and I look at it from a sense of practicality, and I've forgotten that fans get invested emotionally. I, I mean, forgotten to a point like, well, wait a second. Why would you be complaining about that call? If you look at it black and white, it was obviously pass interference or out of bounds or whatever. Um, but that's listen, that's why we get paid to do what we do. Otherwise, we'd be paying our bosses to allow us to talk sports all day, every day, and to cover sports. And the sidebar, I think that's what's really cool about the other thing that we can do here, which is take fans inside the replay booth. Mm -hmm. For years, um, for years, and it will continue, and I just got up the phone with, with some folks in Louisiana, and I said, listen, I've heard it from LSU fans, and certainly we've heard it from Saints fans. They've been in position where calls cost them games, and there is this assumption among fans that the league or the conference or the officials are out to get our team. There is a vendetta. There is uh, some sort of drama going on that costs us. When in actuality, they're, they're just humans that are sometimes wrong. And so when we give fans that transparency and they're able to open up the headset and hear the replay booth, talking to the white hat and walking them through this process, I think it's an aha moment. Like, Oh, Oh, that's not that uncommon from, you know, how my boss talks to me at work or how I work out a problem with a coworker. They're just solving a problem here. They're not really holding it against our team. Well, we have to close out the XFL portion of this interview with a million dollar question and people in St. Louis, we're all in on the Battle Hawks, but we do not want to get our hearts broken again. And I think that was the only negative for some people here saying, I don't know if the XFL is sustainable, so I don't want to emotionally buy in because I can't take it if we lose another team. So small sample size, but based on week one, what is it about this league that is different and that you think makes the XFL sustainable? Well, first of all, I think Tennyson said it best. It is better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all, right? So <laughs> oh, let's... tell that to some people around <laughs> these parts. Let me tell you, <laughs> uh, you can't have sunshine without the rain, and vice versa. I know. Um, in terms of, I, I'll answer that question two ways: Is this a, a team that can win on the field and that can be competing for a title this year? It's such a short season with only 10 games, and you just got a road win against the team that was favored to win the league. Huge advantage for St. Louis, and I think they've proven that they're going to be an outlier in the style of play. Offensive line all over 300 pounds, kind of a ground-and-pound old-school offense, and an outlier in that regard within the scope of what other teams are doing. They can absolutely continue to win. Longevity of the league. If you go back and watch some of the pilot episodes from our favorite TV shows, do you remember what Joey's hair looked like, the first episode of Friends? Like, there's no way Friends was going to last after that first episode. Um, allowing 
programs, whatever they are, to work out their kinks and to kind of find their footing is the key, in my opinion, in a scenario like this where you launch a brand-new league. And the guy who owns the league, who's invested in the league, he's the sole owner. It's Vince McMahon's money. He seemingly has a lot of it. He knows programming. He knows sports entertainment. Um, I think that this was a great weekend to get things started. And it's just a matter of, you know, how much time will the public give this league to find its footing and how much time will the owner continue to invest in the league? No startup makes money right off the bat, right? You've got to find some momentum and find your niche and fine-tune some things. But I, I think that for that weekend, you could not have had a better start. Well, Tom, I certainly wanted to get your opinion on a couple of Mizzou topics. You're from Columbia. You're a Mizzou guy. What was your reaction when Mizzou hired Eli Drinkwitz, and what's been your early takeaways from him as Mizzou's head coach? Well, he comes from a program as of late at Appalachian State that had great momentum. And under Scott Satterfield, and he was his assistant for a year and took over when Scott went to Louisville, um, their their mantra, and, and they lived it every day, was very family-oriented. I mean, it was very much an open-door policy with the coaching staff. And, and, and not that Barry Odom didn't do that at Missouri either, but that was a strength coming out of that Appalachian State program. And we've seen it now at Louisville with Scott Satterfield. And I think that's going to be Eli's strength with this team is being accessible to the players, having an open door policy, understanding that they're all pulling in the right direction. Uh, But number one, his energy level and his enthusiasm is what has already set him apart from the rest. This is a cutthroat league. You have to win on signing day. It's really hard to win on your first signing day with the new schedule. And when he took over this program, so There's a honeymoon period in that regard in terms of getting better players into the program. They're going to have to hit a home run next year. I mean, they're going to have to nail it. And they seem to have great momentum because of his energy and enthusiasm. Um, And what goes hand-in-hand with that, and and Barry Odom's a friend of mine. Uh, I was sorry to see him go. I think he had the program going in the right direction. Um, But from a support standpoint, for whatever reason, in St. Louis or in Kansas City or even in Boone County, people weren't coming to games. And you need to be able to sell tickets and you need to be able to generate excitement. And whether that was a byproduct of when his teams would win or the types of games that they would lose, I, I, you know, that's a sociological study that you could do on the marketing side of things. Um, but the enthusiasm within the state is absolutely critical. And Eli seems to have gotten off on the right foot there. I'm glad you brought that up because when I was on the morning show with Bernie Miklas, we used to speak to Jim Sterk at least once a month. And he would talk about that, about his concern with ticket sales and getting more of an excitement around the Mizzou football program. And I always thought Mizzou missed a huge opportunity when the Rams left St. Louis because this is a sports crazy town that was in need of a football team to rally around. And I know winning helps that, but it just didn't seem like they came in and made their footprint the way that they would have needed to, to get that support from a big market that's right down the road from them in St. Louis. But I always wonder if it's fair 
to put those expectations on Mizzou because the SEC is a different beast. When I was at the network and we would go on our fall football tours, we would go down to LSU or different schools within the SEC, and it is life there. And while I know when Mizzou wins, we saw that with those Gary Pinkle teams, their fans show up, and there are fans that are diehards. But I just wonder in comparison to other SEC schools where this is something that is born into them, it's in their blood to care about these schools 24-7, 365. If we compare Mizzou to the LSUs and Bamas and Auburns of the world, and if that's even a fair comparison to make from a fan standpoint. You hit the nail on the head, and it's something that I've tried to preach to you know my friends that are Mizzou fans. It's something that I think that the Mizzou administration could do a better job of understanding it is um it is generational in the south it is certainly a religion in the south um i had some friends from south carolina that went to a a south carolina missouri game in columbia and i asked them what their biggest takeaway was and in a very southern south carolina draw they said y'all don't have enough traditions and they didn't mean tradition within the program missouri football was really good in the 1960s in the 50s they were good there have been good runs here and there. And obviously what Gary Pinkle did was a good one. No, he just simply meant like there weren't enough unique Southern cheers or songs. Mm-hmm. All you do is M-I-Z-Z-O-U. And he was dead serious. It, it is a way of life in the South. They live football. They breathe football 365 days a year. Um, and you're right. It is, it is at, at times unfair to expect Missouri – to keep up in that regard. And, and before anybody jumps me and says, well, why should we strive to be mediocre? That's ridiculous. We should strive to be great. I understand that. But you also have to understand how the deck is stacked against Missouri. If you take the bottom third of the league, and, and when we're talking about the bottom of the third of the league, we're talking about schools that are in states that are either non-traditional when it comes to a recruiting base. That would be Arkansas, Missouri, and Kentucky or don't have the budget and the fan support that would put them in the upper echelon, and those are the two Mississippi schools. Vanderbilt is in its own category. Let's just toss them to the side for the time being. The only success that those teams have had in recent history, all the individual success have been outliers. Ole Miss had a successful run. They beat Alabama twice under Hugh Freeze. How did they do it? They got the number one recruiting class in the country. They literally bought and paid for that recruiting class and they're they got an ncaa probation as a result of it that's one way to build um mississippi state had dan mullen he got a quarterback in dak prescott that nobody else wanted to play quarterback he was able to develop players and that's still a football rich standpoint from talent standpoint and they were able to go to number one in the country kentucky has been able to build a perennial power in in terms of competing in the east a 9-1 season, a 10-1 season, after a 2-1 season when Mark Stoops got there because they allowed him time to build the program. They allowed him time to stub his foot. He had the benefit of being in the shadow of Kentucky basketball where people weren't invested, didn't really care early on, and his blueprint to go into the Big Ten territory and get elite players from Ohio and Pennsylvania has paid off. Arkansas hasn't been there. Really hard time to get there. They're through another coach. They probably won't get there anytime soon. Missouri went on those great runs under Gary Pinkle. They were able to catch lightning in a bottle with great players were able to show up. Remember, Chase Daniel was from the heart of Texas. Nobody wanted him in the state of Texas to play quarterback. They said he was too short. 
and not good enough. Jeremy Macklin from within the state decides to honor his commitment and show up and turns into one of the all-time greats. Michael Sam, a guy who is undersized that nobody wants, defensive player of the year. And at a time where the East, the traditional powers in the East, were down, the Georgias, the Tennessees, and the Floridas. Um, it's just really hard in this league if you're one of those bottom third teams to find any consistency. You have to find uh, an outlier. You have to catch lightning in a bottle. And therefore, to expect Missouri from a budget standpoint, a recruiting standpoint, to compete year in and year out with Florida and Georgia in their own division, it's it's just not realistic. Yeah, I agree. I also think it doesn't help them that they don't have a true rival that they play against anymore. Realignment has really not done the Mizzou's of the world any favors because if you're a Mizzou fan, you naturally hate Kansas. Well, if you're not playing Kansas and you're playing these other SEC schools where you don't have that emotional tie, it's hard to expect fans to really care as much as they should. I think it extends past rivals. I think it's just institutional knowledge. If you were born and raised on the Big 8 or the Big 12, um, you may remember specific games, say, against Iowa State, where their quarterback wore gloves because it was so cold and attempted only two passes but still ran for 250 yards. You have that memory of playing Iowa State or Nebraska or Texas or Colorado, even in addition to the rivalry games. Um, that history obviously takes time, and it, it's certainly not there in the Big 12. So yeah, the, I think the rivalry stands out, but to me it's just the – the knowledge as a fan and the, the game day experiences of seeing a coach multiple times, seeing a program or a team multiple times, and even going on the road to go to those, go to those places and experiencing football as a whole. It takes time. It certainly does. And what, we've, what we all know and what we've learned is that winning solves a lot of issues. It's, that's the ultimate cleanser. No doubt about that. Tom, this was great. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. And I know you're on the call for the XFL throughout the season. And hopefully we can get you back in Missouri and to a Battle Hawks game here in St. Louis. I will be there for the home opener on the 23rd. I'm incredibly excited. I saw Kurt Hunziker, the president of the team, on my way out of the stadium Sunday night. I said, I don't know what's on your plate right now, but you better hire a dozen more people to answer the phones because you're going to be selling a ton of tickets. And I can't wait to see what the Dome's like on the 23rd. Well, I uh, I have spoken to some people, and I know that they're getting close to capacity there. I think it's going to be a wild environment. So we look forward to seeing you in St. Louis then in a few weeks. Looking forward to it, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Sit back. Relax. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. It's time for a review on the Small Talk Podcast with Michelle Smallman, brought to you by Land Rover St. Louis. That sounder means it's time for a review. Before we get to the review, let's welcome in Anthony. Anthony, hello. Tell me about it. Stud. Oh, yeah. Grease. Tell me about it. Stud. Grease was such a great movie. It's so bizarre that they had us thinking that these 40-year-olds with wrinkles were teenagers, like at 17 and 18. Like, I can't fathom that now. I, and I think that's part of the reason why, as a kid, you look at high schoolers or people in college and you think they're so much older than you because the media you're consuming of people presenting themselves as teenagers are actually in their 30s. I love Justin Long so much, a, a bizarre fetish for him. But he's like 34 and everything I think is like 20-something. Like, oh, man, he's so young. He's going to be such a great actor. He's like already 37. It's like, oh, he's only a couple years older than me. Yeah. I mean, you look at 
that Drew Barrymore movie, Never Been Kissed, when she goes back to high school and you have 20-something Jessica Alba as the hot girl in school. Young girls are watching that movie and being like, why don't I look like her? Because she's a fully formed woman and you're 14. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, let's get to a review. <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, so last week, Anthony, I kind of went ham on a reviewer. I thought was pretty rude and I was sick and delirious I was sad about Kobe and I just you let him have it in your smoker's voice I did sound like that yes it took me a second to regain composure after you mocked me like that and it registered that yes that's what I sounded like listen here reviewer (laughs) I don't like your tone of candor oh my god what was that girl's name from Greece that's me oh Rizzo probably I'm Rizzo from Greece Tony Zuko mmm Oh, it's so embarrassing. I sounded so bad. I you can sound just, better now. I do, but I can just imagine someone listening in their car to me sounding like Rizzo from Greece going nuts on a reviewer as I'm sad about Kobe and very sick and delirious. So anyway, happier times, happier times. This one comes from Tim who says, great podcast, but I miss Michelle in the morning show. Her and Bernie, she was the main reason I listened. Love your podcast. Well, thank you so much. We're back to people loving me Yay. rather than hating me because I went on vacation. <laughs> I think the voice has a lot to do with it. It's a much more accepting voice now. It is. And I'll keep that in mind the next time I get sick. I'll maybe take the week off. That The last voice shoved down my ears like a pack of Marlboro Reds. It was, <laughs> it was aggressive. No, you were great. I'm glad you're feeling better, though. Thank you so much. And apologies to everyone about my voice and demeanor. And I'm sorry for busting your chops. I know you couldn't help it. You know how they have those memes? I'm sorry for what I said when I was hangry. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm sorry for what I said when I was sick. Although I'm not really sorry because that person sucks. So. When you were a 50-year-old smoker with one lung. That was me. Anyway, thank you to Maddie for joining us again. Thank you to Booty Patrol for jumping on. And- Booty Patrol! <laughs> and talking to us. Thank you to Tom Hart for talking with us about Mizzou and all things XFL. And thank you for listening. We will be back in action next week with Saruti. The debate you've all been waiting for is going to finally take place. But until then, it's been real. Thanks for listening to Small Talk. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One app.